So is that how you pictured Heaven's Waiting Room? Uh, I'll just tell you, before we moved down here from Michigan, um, Florida was known as Heaven's Waiting Room. Um, so, but I'll tell you this. Most people um, don't want to think or talk about the end of their life because it's easier just to pretend it doesn't exist, at least until we're forced to, which is every time you walk into a funeral home for a funeral, when the diagnosis comes that you weren't expecting, or you know, if you have a near-death experience, um, we are all faced with this question, um, what is going to happen to me when I die? Where am I going to go? How do I get there? And maybe, maybe there is some kind of line, some kind of waiting room where we're waiting for our names to be called so that we can give an account for our life here on earth and hope that it's enough. Because that's kind of that's really all, all we have, right? Is we hope that, that, that you know, what we do on our life here on earth can tip the scales. You know, is that how it works? Is that what we need? We just need a duffel bag full of all the accomplishments and good things and, and, and awards that we got, and that'll tip the scales in our favor? Is that, is that what the end of life's going to be like, or is it something different? Well, today's message is titled, Two Gates. And it comes from a passage in Scripture where Jesus is talking about the afterlife. And this is what he says in Matthew 7. He says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. That's very important. Choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Throughout every generation of humanity, we find something very, very similar, that there are really only two places to go when you die. One is good, one is bad. One is up, one is down. One is eternal merriment and and, uh, and paradise. The other is eternal damnation. One is the place we all want to go to, which is heaven. The other is the place that that none of us want to go to, and that is hell. And so today, we're going to be looking at how Jesus describes both places. And I'm hopefully going to answer some of the questions that you've carried around. And there's a lot of information that I want to get to that I hope will just begin to expand our understanding of the afterlife. And one of the main questions I want to answer is can anyone with assurance know where they're going to go when they take their last breath on this planet? Where's the next breath going to be? Can you know with assurance the answer to that question? And that's what I want to get into. But before we do, let me pray um, for us. Um, God, thank you for today. Uh, Lord, I believe you have something really beautiful to share today. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth today. Speak to each one of us individually. God, you have a message that is tailored for each one of our hearts. You know us. You love us. And God, if there is anything that is holding us back from hearing from you this morning, would you allow us to set it down? and open our hearts and minds so that you can kind of have the opportunity to speak into our lives, God. So I invite you here to just fill this room with your presence and speak to us about what you have planned to come after this life is over. In your holy name, amen. So um, last week we started this series. It's a four-week series called Afterlife. And uh, if you were here, the main truth we talked about um, is, is this. We talked about this. Everyone lives forever somewhere. 
It's kind of what we said. Everyone lives forever somewhere. So I'm not going to answer the question, what will happen to us when we die? If you missed last week, go online. You can watch it or you can listen to it. Um, today, I'm not going to answer that because we answered it last week. You keep on living. Um, after you die here, you keep on living. Today, we want to answer the question, where will I go when I die? And uh, because this is a series focused on heaven, we're going to spend most of our time talking about heaven, but we also have to acknowledge and talk about hell. And so just I just want you to know there's going to be some descriptions coming a little later that, you know, maybe PG-13-ish um, when we talk about that. So if you have a young child and uh, you might not want to open up that discussion on the other place besides heaven, um, you know, this is your chance to like take them over to K-Kids. We have a great kids ministry and you just walk right out there and they'll tell you where to go um, there. Um, but of all the topics related to religion, this is one of the most uncomfortable when you start talking about hell. Because you have to talk about hell when you talk about heaven. And what's interesting about, about, um, about talking about hell is that it's kind of a joke in our culture in a lot of ways. It's like I have been, uh, you know, I have the privilege of being the chaplain for the Orlando Magic for the last um, six seasons and our five or six. And I know this season we're going to be even better. I think we're going to make it further in the playoffs. Super excited to get things started. But I've sat in Magic games and had people in the Amway Center yelling down to the court at the top of their lungs, telling players from the opposite team or referees most often to go to hell like it's just it's just like this this thing like i want you to go to hell and so they we say that it's kind of become the grand superlative in our language you know it's like oh the date from hell anybody ever have one of those the date from hell the apartment from hell the job from hell the vacation from hell the cat from hell which is all of them by the way um (laughs) But hell is like a solemn topic, and I really believe that if we truly understood what it, w- what it would be like, that we would never joke again about anyone ever going there, if we truly understood what it is going to be like. In fact, I'll just put it this way. Hell is such an awful place that Jesus came to earth and gave up his life to keep us from going there. That's how awful of a place it is. Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. Of the 40 or so parables that Jesus taught, over half of them um, deal with God's eternal judgment. And so today we're going to look at one of those stories. It's found in the book of Luke where Jesus tells a story about two men. One goes to heaven and one goes to hell. And as I read this, it is very descriptive and it gives us a way to visualize and see the difference between heaven and hell and kind of see what Jesus is revealing. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And in this story, he kind of gives us a peek into the afterlife. Luke 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham was one of the fathers of, of the Israel nation, um, said to be you know, in heaven with God. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, I want to point out a couple things before I move on. Jesus is not saying here that poor people go to heaven and rich people don't. Um, That is not what he's saying here. He is actually speaking into the culture of the day, which actually believed that if you were poor or you um, you were an invalid, that that you were being punished by God for your sin or someone in your family and God had abandoned you. And and the rich people in that culture were seen as blessed by God and welcomed by God. And they they were like surely going to heaven. And so Jesus is speaking in and saying, God sees things a little different than you do. 
Don't allow the outward trappings of this life to dictate and make you think that, that, that this, is, this blessing here, the way that people's lives here, are going to, to impact where they go. So he's speaking directly into that and just saying, hey, God sees things differently. Verse 24, so he called to him, the, the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's house. I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. And Jesus, of course, is alluding to the fact that even when he raised from the dead, there are still people that don't believe. He's just alluding that it doesn't matter if someone raises from the dead. People will still choose a different way. And there's so much in this passage about heaven and hell that Jesus is giving us a glimpse into. I want to start with heaven, um, and we'll kind of take some cues there, and then we'll switch over and talk about hell. But what we learn in heaven is, first of all, um, uh, he is in the presence of angels, And the angels actually escort Lazarus to heaven. And those are the beings that we hint at and talk about, but we can't see they are God's warriors. And you just need to know, angels are not fat little babies with wings and shoot suction suction cup darts at people and make them fall in love. That is not angels when it comes to heaven. Actually, angels are God's warriors. So think of the most biggest, baddest warrior you could ever think of. Add size, weight, presence, and intimidation. And that's why in Scripture, anytime anyone ever comes into contact with an angel, they either fall down as if dead, or they have to be told, please don't be afraid. So all of a sudden, what we find is that Lazarus is now living in the spiritual realm in the presence of these angelic beings. Secondly, Lazarus is with the great heroes of the faith. There's this great sense of community. When you read about heaven, it is about relationship. All the Bible stories that you read, you can actually talk with those who are there, who have gone before you, both your family that are in heaven and also the great heroes of the faith. You can talk to them. Like you can talk to Moses and go, Moses, what was it like walking across the Red Sea with the water piled up on both sides? Uh, you know, you go, Jonah, what was it like in the belly of the fish? It must have been so stinky in there. You know, you say, 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 uh, say um, Noah, uh, what did you do with all the poop from the animals? Like, I always want to know that. Like, where did it all go? You know, what did he do? Um, you can just ask questions like that. You're in the presence in this community of people who have gone before you, people of faith. The rich man is asking Abraham to send Lazarus to his family, meaning that Lazarus had a physical being, just in case you wonder. We talked about this last week, in case you wonder if we're just going to be spirits floating on clouds or whatnot. No, Lazarus had a physical being, and even more so, he had a restored body, like we talked about last week, and we're going to dive into a lot deeper next week. Because the rich man says, send him. He was immobile when he lived on earth. He was like laid on a mat in front, of, in front of the rich man's home where the dogs would come up and lick his sores. He couldn't do anything on his own, yet that the rich man is looking at him and saying, please send him because obviously this restored body must be whole and mobile. And this passage in Revelation starts coming to life that describes what heaven will be like. Revelation 21, 4. He, God, 
will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, and this is important, the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And what we find is Lazarus has no more tears. He's not in pain anymore. There's no dogs licking his wounds. He's not begging anymore. His needs are met. There's no more death. There's no more sadness. There's no more crying. There's no more pain because the old order of things has passed away. Well, what is that old order? It's the order that you and I live in right now. The old order. It will someday be old. Well, what's the order of our day? It's the order of decay. Decay of our bodies and decay of our planet. It's the order of sin and selfishness. It's the order of sorrow and loss as normal. It's the order of stress and worry being constant. It's the order of unmet needs and unmet wants and unmet desires causing frustration and anger. That's the order that we live under right now. It's an order that's ruled by sin and selfishness. What the Bible speaks about us being able to be in in heaven is massively different. We talked on this last week about a book called Imagine Heaven, where the author actually studied a thousand cases from around the world of people who had near-death experiences, where they died in accidents um, or on operating operating tables and were brought back to life. They're called NDEs, near-death experiences, and people that have them are NDEers. And what we're finding is that with advances in technology over the last 50 to 100 years, we're getting more people back from the dead than ever before. And what I mean by the dead, meaning that there's no electrical activity in their brain, no electrical activity in their heart, where scientists are saying there is no possible way that these people can have any sentient thoughts whatsoever that have experienced this condition, yet some of them flatlined for up to 10 minutes, come back from the dead, and when they do, they have a story to tell of going someplace different than here. And these are doctors, these are college professors, these are bank presidents, these are people of all ages, cultures, They point to this exhilarating picture of what the Bible describes as heaven. They can often describe from hovering over their bodies um, the operating rooms that they're in. They can describe what people were doing to them while they were watching. This is no brain activity, no heart activity. Doctors say it's not possible for them to have any memories, yet they've done studies where they've taken 100 people who have claimed to watch themselves be resuscitated, completely dead and flatlined, and they would say, describe what was being done to you, and they say 93% of them have so much detail that they could teach a course to medical professionals about how to revive somebody because they know the details that close where they did a test subject of 100 people that died but didn't claim that and asked them to describe what was happening. Not a single person got a thing right except for what they'd seen on TV. So there's something going on with these people that doctors say, look, we can't explain it. There must be life after death. And you can go listen. Last week we dove into that. But one of the people studied in the book, his name was Dale Black. He was a pilot. Um, He died in a plane crash, actually, um, and describes being transported from his body to a place he never wanted to leave. He didn't want to come back from. And he describes the feeling of being in that place like this. He says, part of the joy I was experiencing was not only the presence of everything wonderful, but the absence of everything terrible. There was no strife, no competition, No sarcasm, no betrayal, no deception, no lies, no murders, no unfaithfulness, no disloyalty, nothing contrary to the light and life and love. The absence of sin was something you could feel. 
There was no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sadness because there was nothing to be sad about. There was no need to hide because there was nothing to hide from. It was all out in the open. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? That the absence of sin is something you can feel. And I'll just tell you, I want to be in a place like that for eternity. And as far as more specifics on heaven, um, I just want to tell you, come back next week because we're taking a deep dive. I hate to leave you hanging like that, but there is so much detail, so much to get to. It's been hard to cut content back because there's so much that I want to share with you. Um, But come back next week. We're going to be really digging into a very vivid description of what scripture tells us and some of these people that have had NDEs describe, um, you know, kind of like where where heaven is now and where it will be in the future. What what are we going to eat there? What will our bodies be like in detail? What are our relationships? ship's going to be like, where will, where will we live, what will we do, um, so don't miss next week. Um, on the flip side of describing heaven through this passage, this story that Jesus told gives us a glimpse into hell. And I want to take a few minutes and just describe this because I think sometimes because hell has become kind of a joke to our culture, it's something that we say tongue-in-cheek, we don't understand. We don't think about the reality of what it might be like, and so uh, Jesus gives us a glimpse. In hell, there is torment. Abuse, ridicule, scorn, physical pain, sorrow, dread. Think of your worst day you have ever had on earth, the lowest point you've ever been, the death of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, financial failure, all the emotions that go along with that and sorrow. Your worst day here is a shadow of what your days in hell will be like. From this story, we will know who we are. We will remember our time on earth. That is consistent throughout Scripture. There will be such a place of physical distress with fires and burning. This is throughout Scripture. That even a drop of water from someone's finger will be welcomed and longed for to just ease the pain up even just a little bit. It's so bad we will do anything to let our friends and family know that they don't want to be there. In the story, the rich man was completely alone. There is no joy in anything he says. There is no hope in any of his words, only discomfort and sorrow and anguish. It's very clear throughout Scripture and in this story that once you end up where you are going, it is final. You cannot cross from hell to heaven. You cannot cross from heaven to hell. 22% of people that claim to have near-death experiences say that they actually went to hell. They believe it's actually more than that, but a lot of people will not talk about it after they come back because they just feel ashamed and it's just been a traumatic experience and they're so embarrassed and so distraught they can't even bring it up. They just want to they just want to get it out of their mind. But the ones that did come back and talk about it, they explained it as one of them explained it as the most depressing place I've ever experienced. Another said the fear was unbearable. The fear was unbearable. Another said the loneliness was excruciating. Um, one man who experienced hell in his NDE. He said, there are things that I don't care to remember. In fact, much that occurred was simply too gruesome and disturbing to recall. Um, Howard Storm, uh, he's a professor at Northern Kentucky University. He was actually an atheist. He died on an operating table. And um, he explained in his NDE of being tormented by what he described as what used to be human beings, but stripped of every impulse of compassion and driven by unbridled cruelty. And this is how he describes it. He said, they began shouting and hurling insults at me, demanding that I hurry along. The the more miserable I became, the more enjoyment they derived from my distress. A terrible sense of dread was growing within me. This experience was too real. In some ways, I was more aware and sensitive than I had ever been. When I looked around, I was horrified to discover that we were in complete darkness 
the hopelessness of my situation overwhelmed me. I told them I would go no further to leave me alone. Then they began to push and shove me about. I began to fight back. A wild frenzy of taunting, screaming, and hitting ensued. I fought like a wild man as I swung it, kicked at them. They bit and tore back at me. All the while, it was obvious that they were having great fun. Even though I couldn't see anything in the darkness, I was aware that there were dozens or hundreds of them all around and over me. And I will just tell you this. Um, he goes on in a lot more description that I will not read here because it is just horrific. Hell is a place that none of us want to even think about. And I don't want to describe it anymore because it is depressing to think about. That there is a place like that. It is so awful that I think it makes us ask a lot of questions about God, doesn't it? It makes us question God. And I want to switch gears here. And I want to answer a couple of questions that I think comes up every time you talk about heaven and hell, especially hell. I've heard this question since I was young, especially as a pastor for the last 22, 23 years. I'm starting to lose count the older I get. Um, It's like I've heard this every time this topic comes up, this question of why would a loving God? Send someone to hell. You ever heard that question? All of us have heard that. Why would, it, why would God, if he's all loving and all loving, why would he send someone to hell? And I want to I be gentle in how I respond because I think this is a really sensitive subject, but I just want to put it simply. God doesn't want anyone to go there. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. When, when talking about Jesus coming back, we're going to talk about that in week four of this series in two weeks, Peter explains, the apostle Peter talks about why Jesus is slow in coming back. In 2 Peter 3, he says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Peter is saying, look, God doesn't want anyone to go there. That's why he isn't rushing to send his son back. He's doing that so more and more people can come to repentance, so that people can become saved. He's giving you and I time to make up our minds. A loving God would do whatever it takes to rescue people, which is exactly what God did. John 3.16, you've heard this verse, you've seen that sporting events everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why Jesus came, not to tell you how bad you are, but to save you from an eternity in hell. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The pinnacle of all of scripture is God sending his son, Jesus Christ, here to pay for our sins on the cross. To save those who believe in him. Jesus came here on a rescue mission. That is why he showed up. So that no one would have to spend eternity in hell. God's heart is that everyone would be saved. So the answer to the question. Why would a good God send anyone to hell? The sad truth is that he doesn't. People actually choose it. People actually choose it every day around the globe. This morning, people are offered the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ, and they choose not to. It's just like Abraham says in the story. If your family hasn't believed with what they already know, they've heard from the prophets, 
They've read scripture. They won't believe if a man raises from the dead, which is true even today. Jesus' death and resurrection is one of the most well-documented events in antiquity with over 24,000 copies of manuscripts that reveal that it's true. Still, people choose not to believe in Jesus. God's heart is that no one would go to hell. So if that's God's heart and Jesus came here on a rescue mission, the next question that so many people ask is, how can a person know for sure that they're going to go to heaven when they die? If there's one of only two options that we can go to when we die, which most of us, all of us believe, history has shown us that almost every generation of human being, anthropological evidence, say the same thing. How can a person know for sure they're going to heaven when they die? And I'll just tell you this, most people think, then in order to get into heaven, you have to be what? Good. Just got to be a good person. You're good. Has to outweigh your bad or at least come close. And here's the theory. Um, let me grab this. Here's the theory. There's a good God who lives in a good place reserved for good people. And those who are good will be there. And here's the question that that, rises, that, that raises. How good is good enough? What's a passing grade? Is it 70, 30? Is it 70% good, 30% bad? Is it, is it 51, 49? Where's the line? What if I don't have enough time left to counterbalance the bad that I've done, but I meant to? Does that count? There's major problems with this theory. Good people go to heaven. How much of this do you need? When do you cross the line? We don't know what good is. Religious leaders don't even agree. We have no indication from God what we need to do, how the scoring system works for the good deeds. Our internal moral gauges aren't much help because they do not agree cross-culturally. What if we, what if we die before we have a chance to make up for the wrong that we did? The Bible, you know, the Bible doesn't claim that you can get to heaven through good deeds. The Bible doesn't say, hey, fill up your duffel bag of your life with all the accolades and all the great things that you've done. And when you get to heaven, present it. And if it's good enough, you'll get in. The Bible doesn't say that. Actually, the Ten Commandments, it, we're actually told that they were given to us to show us how bad we are to see our sin and realize that not a single person can follow the Ten Commandments. Jesus told the most religious people in his day, he told them that they weren't good enough to enter God's kingdom, yet at the same time he told prostitutes and criminals that God would gladly welcome them in. How good is good enough? Nobody knows. Fortunately, that's not the system that God has set in place. If you boil down what the Bible teaches and Jesus teaches about getting into heaven, it is this truth. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do there's one thing you walk out of this room with, you need to know that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Romans 3, 21 says, but now a righteousness, right standing with God from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It does not say through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have more good than bad. To all who are good people and bad people are, are, are out, good people are in. It doesn't say that. It says to all who believe, keep, it goes on, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that we find and things that in Scripture that God says is the way to live. But we are justified. What is that word? Freely. We are justified. Say it out loud. Say we're justified. Freely. 
A free gift given by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus' disciples, they asked Jesus, how do we get to heaven to be with you? This is what Jesus says in John 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's what Jesus is saying with the title of this message being two gates. Jesus is saying the narrow gate is not a gate at all. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. That's the narrow gate. It's not a gate. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with him. It's Jesus, period. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus more good than bad. Jesus plus help old ladies cross the street. Jesus plus don't kill cats. It's none of those things. It is just Jesus, period. And Jesus doesn't make you take his road. It's like my mom. You know, I grew up in a Christian household. She loves Jesus, and she used to always say this. Jesus is a gentleman. He never comes in uninvited. He never forces you to do anything. Jesus doesn't make anyone follow him. He gave you free will. That's what makes you human, your ability to choose who to love, who to follow, who to give to, who to take from. You have this free will that makes you human and puts in your court the decision of whether you're going to choose to follow Jesus or not. That's why we have to choose to go his way. Jesus says it's whoever, the direction that they choose. Choose the narrow gate. Now, does that seem narrow-minded? Because that's what you get out of Christianity. When people talk about Christianity, they say, oh, you can't be one way. There's got to be a bunch of ways. That's so narrow-minded. And Christians are kind of beaten over the head with this intolerance. Well, I will just tell you, this system that God has put in place, I want to suggest to you, is more than fair. In fact, it is more fair than any other religious system on the planet. Christianity is the only belief system that can make the three claims that I'm about to make to you. And I want you to remember them because this sets Christianity apart from every other thing that you will ever believe about getting to heaven. And the first is this, when it comes to, when it comes to salvation and comes to heaven, everyone is welcome. There is not a single person excluded from, from heaven. When you read scripture, every single person on planet earth is welcome to believe in Jesus Christ. There is no one excluded. The second truth is this. Everyone gets in the same way. It is through Jesus Christ. There are no back doors. There are no side doors. There's no cutting in line. There's no secret handshake. There's no bag of tricks you can bring. You get through through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everybody gets in the same way. Everyone's welcome. And everyone gets in the same way. And everyone can meet the requirements. It's belief. Everyone can meet the requirements. It's belief. It's the same for everyone. So I want to take kind of the end of this message and I want to give you three application points to it because it's like this is a lot of great information and it's understanding and there's, there's some deep theology that we're talking about, but it's also simple theology. But I want to give you three application points. What do we do with this? And I'll just tell you the very first one is that if you have never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never crossed the line of faith, I want to tell you, you need to accept Jesus today. You need to accept Jesus today. If you haven't yet accepted Jesus and chosen the narrow gate, here's the beauty of this moment. You don't have to wait until you're on your deathbed. You can do that right now and live with the hope that comes with knowing that when you take your last breath here, where your next one's going to be, you can choose the narrow gate now. You don't have to wait until you're on your deathbed like my dad did. 
And I'll just tell you, my dad lived a really hard life. He um, multiple affairs, lots of tragedy in his life, lots of loss. I never knew my dad. Um, I knew him I, when I was young. I would get a Christmas card with a check in it, and on my birthday I would get a check in, and I maybe get a phone call a year for a lot of time. And I got to know him a little bit. But he would never talk to me about God. Like I would bring up God and he would like, I don't want to talk about that. God and I have a deal. And I'm like, okay, you know, what does that even mean? And he's, I just want to just, he would just shut me down. Well, when he was 80 years old, he fell and hit his head and had a closed head injury. And um, on his deathbed, my brother and I believe he accepted Christ. He, we had gone to visit. We drove from Michigan down to Atlanta, and um, we were in his room, and uh, he couldn't talk. All he could do was move his head, and he was awake, but he couldn't communicate, and they had tubes all in him and stuff. And my brother, man, my brother, God love him. My brother brings a CD player and the Bible on CD, and for 48 hours, my dad listened to the Bible on CD, and it had no choice. He couldn't say anything. He couldn't say no. Like, my brother's just like, you're listening to this. Well, it got to the point where we had to go back home and, um, you know, they didn't know if he was going to make it or not. Um, and I just remember, you know, it's weird. You don't have a relationship with your parents. You still love them. It's just one of those things that God kind of puts in you. So I got kind of over my dad's face and, and I just said, Dad, you know we love you. And he just nodded his head. And I said, Dad, you know God loves you, don't you? And he just nodded his head. And I just explained the gospel. And I said, Dad, do you want to accept Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior? And he just nodded his head. And so I said, pray with me. And so he closed his eyes, and I just prayed. I don't remember what I said. I just prayed a prayer with him and kind of led him through the prayer. And again, he couldn't talk. I'm hoping that he spoke from his heart. But all I know is that whenever I said amen, and I opened my eyes and he opened his, there were just tears just streaming down the side of his head just over and over and over and over. And my brother and I, we really do believe that that was his salvation moment, like getting in at the 11th hour. You don't have to wait until then. You can do that right now if you never have. You can, have, you can accept Jesus and have your name written in the book of life. You can seal your eternal destination by accepting Jesus. Because you need to know Jesus purchased your ticket into heaven when he died on the cross, and all you have to do is receive it. He bought something that you can't buy. He purchased something that you are incapable of purchasing, and that is forgiveness of your sins, and he offers forgiveness freely. This is such a big deal that eternity hangs in the balance in this moment. And so this is what I want to do. I want to pause this message, and I want to invite you, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ into your life, you have never stepped across the line of faith. You can do that now by believing in him. And so what I want to do is I want to put this message on hold. And I just want to pray with any of you that want to do that right this moment. So would everybody in the room, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And if that's you, if you are ready to accept Jesus and step across the line of faith, I just want to invite you to pray a prayer kind of like what... Um, I prayed with my dad, and there's nothing special with the words, but it really is the posture of your heart praying to God. And maybe it's the first time you've ever talked to him. That's okay. He knows you already, and he's ready to listen. But just borrow my words and make them your words to God. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe what the Bible says, that I can't get to heaven by myself. I can't earn my way there. I can only accept the free gift of salvation from you. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sin. 
I believe that he rose from the grave, defeating death, and offers me a place in heaven through the forgiveness of my sins. And I ask for that forgiveness now. I choose the narrow gate, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me so I might have a home in heaven. And as best as I know how, I'm asking you to come into my life. I put my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to ask you, if you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do a couple things. One is tell somebody that you know has been praying for you or that brought you here. And then I'd love for you to just take the bold step of stopping by our starting point area where we'd love to give you a Bible and talk to you about what it means to take some next steps in your new faith journey. But if you prayed that prayer with me for the first time, this next point, now this application point, now applies to you as well. And this is to everybody in the room. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and those of you that are brand new, I want to challenge you to apply what we just talked about and change your mindset. Change the way you think. Colossians 3, 4, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Don't be focused here and so dwelling here that that's all you see. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. And it is like this. Don't live and dream and act like this is all there is. You need to remember that heaven waits. Remember that heaven waits, that your best day on earth here is but a shadow of what your worst day in heaven will be. The best is yet to come. When your time here is done, heaven awaits. If you live in pain today, there's be, there will be a day that you don't. If you struggle in relationships here, there will be a day that you will be in perfect relationship with God. If the burden of your life is wearisome and heavy, there will be a day that there will be no more burden. Have an eternal perspective that here is temporary. Set your sights in your mind on the realities of heaven. Think about things above, not things below. And I will just tell you, when I am struggling and I have a tough day or the pain in my body is overwhelming and I remember that, the burden just gets a little bit lighter. The pain decreases just a little bit, knowing that it won't always be this way. I'll tell you, this verse is why we're doing this series, that you might live a little bit differently with the hope of heaven in your life. And I have one more application point. Um, before we do it, um, we are going to receive our offering. And so, ushers, if you guys can come on down. This is a moment where if you're new and you're visiting, this moment, the only moment of this service is not for you. Let the basket go by. Um, we don't, we're not interested in your resources and your finances. We're just glad that you're here. For those of you that call Kensington home, you are doing a part right now in giving to what the mission is that we're on. You're actually doing a part of what we're about to give as the third application point. And if, if, you're a, if you, you call Kensington home, thank you for giving to what we're doing. Thank you for, for giving back a little bit of your resources that God has blessed you with to the mission that we're on. And I will just tell you this, the third application point that I have, and this might sound a little bit cheesy to you, but I was just thinking of a way to make it memorable, especially with all the movie hero movies that we have with superheroes in it, but it's this, this third application point is if you believe everything that we've talked about, um, the application point is then go save the world. 
like go save the world. That's what superheroes do, right? You can be a superhero. Um, and I will just tell you this. If Jesus thought that it was worth it for him to leave the comfort in the beauty of heaven to come here to this dirty, rotten planet to reach us, to save us. And he tells us, he says, hey, I want you to go do the same. Tell them that I'm preparing a place for people. Then how much more should we take on the challenge to save the world, to tell the truth about Jesus and the afterlife to anyone who will listen? Not in a crazy, weird person way, okay? Like, don't grab your bullhorn and go to a college camp and say, you're going to hell. You know, don't do that, okay? I don't think that really works. But tell people about what we're talking about and who Jesus is in a way that will pique their interest, that they'll go, hey, I want more answers to that. Um, Not everyone is willing to listen, but I will just tell you, it grieves me every Sunday that every seat in this room is not full because what hangs in the balance every single Sunday morning is heaven and hell. That's the reality of what we do. We talk about eternity and give people the opportunity every single Sunday to cross the line of faith and seal an eternity in heaven. Why? Because Jesus came here to save us from it. We should do everything we can to save others as well. That's why Jesus invites us into the mission. So go out and save the world. People are going to say no. You can't help that, but what you can do is plant seeds and invite them here, and maybe some Sunday they will say yes and come here and accept Jesus for the first time. That's why we do that every single Sunday. I just feel like as a church, we need to be on the front edge of inviting people into relationship with Jesus on a weekly basis. So here's how we're going to end our service. Um, Scripture tells us that when one person accepts Jesus, which I am sure there is one, if not more, that just accepted him a few minutes ago, but when one person accepts Jesus, that there is a celebration and a party thrown in heaven for that one person. And so one of the things that we're going to do in finishing our service is respond by joining with the celebration going on in heaven, and that is just singing a couple of songs of worship to God together. Like when we worship God, when we, when we sing at the end of our services most of the time, when we do that, We're joining with what's already happening in heaven as the celebration is going on with people who have accepted Jesus. So I want to invite you to stand up with me and with the band. And as you feel comfortable, I want you to sing. Use that voice of yours to praise God. And over the next few minutes, set your sights on things above.